LearnOutloud.com presents the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson. The writing showcased here represents some of the best of this great American thinker's work. For more educational audio and video, please visit www.learnoutloud.com. We would also like to point your attention to the free audio and video directory, a large selection of over 1,500 audio and video resources that are available free of charge. This directory can be accessed at www.learnoutloud.com free. The best of beauty is a finer charm than skills and surfaces in outlines or rules of art can ever teach, namely a radiation from the work of art of human character. A wonderful expression through stone or canvas or musical sound of the deepest and simplest attributes of our nature, and therefore most intelligible at last to those souls which have these attributes. In the sculptures of the Greek, in the masonry of the Romans, and in the pictures of the Tuscan and Venetian masters, the highest charm is the universal language they speak. A confession of moral nature, of purity, love, and hope, breathes from them all. That which we carry to them, the same we bring back more fairly illustrated in the memory. The traveler who visits the Vatican and passes from chamber to chamber through galleries of statues, vases, sarcophagi, and candelabra, through all forms of beauty, cut in the richest materials, is in danger of forgetting the simplicity of the principles out of which they all sprung, and that they had their origin from thoughts and laws in his own breast. He studies the technical rules on these wonderful remains, but forgets that these works were not always thus constellated, that they are the contributions of many ages and many countries, that each came out of the solitary workshop of one artist, who toiled perhaps in ignorance of the existence of other sculpture created his work without other model, save life, household life, and the sweet and smart of personal relations, of beating hearts and meeting eyes, of poverty and necessity, and hope and fear. These were his inspirations, and these are the effects he carries home to your heart and mind. In proportion to his force, the artist will find in his work an outlet for his proper character. He must not be in any manner pinched or hindered by his material, but through his necessity of imparting himself, the adamant will be wax in his hand and will allow an adequate communication of himself in his full stature and proportion. He need not cumber himself with a conventional nature and culture, nor ask, what is the mode in Rome or in Paris? But that house and weather and manner of living which poverty and the fate of birth has made at once so odious and so dear, in the gray, unpainted wood cabin, on the corner of a New Hampshire farm, or in the log hut of the backwoods, or in a narrow lodging where he has endured the constraints and seeming of a city poverty, will serve as well as any other condition as the symbol of a thought which pours itself indifferently through all. I remember when in my younger days I had heard of the wonders of Italian painting. I fancied the great pictures would be great strangers, some surprising combination of color and form, a foreign wonder, barbaric pearl and gold, like the spontoons and standards of the militia, which play such pranks in the eyes and the imaginations of schoolboys. I was to see and acquire I knew not what, but when I came at last to Rome and saw with eyes the pictures, I found that genius left to novices, the gay and fantastic and ostentatious, and itself pierced directly to the simple and true, that it was familiar and sincere, that it was the old, eternal fact I had met already in so many forms, that it was the plain, you and me, I knew so well. I had the same experience already in a church at Naples. There I saw that nothing was changed with me but the place, and said to myself, Thou foolish child, 
Hast thou come out hither over four thousand miles of salt water to find that which was perfect to thee at home? That fact I saw again in the Academia at Naples, in the chambers of sculpture, and yet again when I came to Rome and to the paintings of Raphael, Angelo, Sacchi, Titan, and Leonardo da Vinci. What, O mole, workest thou in the earth so fast? It had traveled by my side. That which I fancied I had left in Boston was here in the Vatican, and again at Milan, and at Paris, and made all traveling ridiculous as a treadmill. I now require this of all pictures, that they domesticate me, not that they dazzle me. Pictures must not be too picturesque. Nothing astonishes men so much as common sense and plain dealing. All great actions have been simple, and all great pictures are. The Transfiguration by Raphael is an eminent example of this particular merit. A calm, benign beauty shines all over this picture and goes directly to the heart. It seems almost to call you by name. The sweet and sublime face of Jesus is beyond praise, yet how it disappoints all florid expectations. This familiar, simple, home-speaking countenance is as if one should meet a friend. The knowledge of picture-dealers has its value, but listen not to their criticism when your heart is touched by genius. It was not painted for them, it was painted for you. For such as had eyes capable of being touched by simplicity and lofty emotions. Yet when we have said all our fine things about the arts, we must end with a frank confession that the arts as we know them are but initial. Our best praise is given to what they aimed and promised, not to the actual result. He has conceived meanly of the resources of man who believes that the best age of production is past. The real value of the Iliad or the Transfiguration is as signs of power, billows or ripples they are of the stream of tendency, tokens of the everlasting effort to produce, which even in its worst estate the soul betrays. Art has not yet come to its maturity if it does not put itself abreast with the most potent influences of the world, if it is not practical and moral, if it does not stand in connection with the conscience, if it does not make the poor and uncultivated feel that it addresses them with a voice of lofty cheer. There is a higher work for art than the arts. They are abortive births of an imperfect or vitiated instinct. Art is the need to create, but in its essence, immense and universal. It is impatient of working with lame or tired hands, and of making cripples and monsters, such as all pictures and statues are. Nothing less than the creation of man and nature is its end. A man should find in it an outlet for his whole energy. He may paint and carve only as long as he can do that. Art should exhilarate and throw down the walls of circumstance on every side, awakening in the beholder the same sense of universal relation and power which the work evinced in the artist, and its highest effect is to make new artists. Already history is old enough to witness the old age and disappearance of particular arts. The art of sculpture is long ago perished to any real effect. It was originally a useful art, a mode of writing, a savage's record of gratitude or devotion, and among a people possessed of a wonderful perception of form. This childish carving was refined to the utmost splendor of effect. But it is the game of a rude and youthful people, and not the manly labor of a wide and spiritual nation. Under an oak tree loaded with leaves and nuts, under a sky full of eternal eyes, I stand in a thoroughfare. But in the works of our plastic arts, and especially of sculpture, creation is driven into a corner. I cannot hide from myself that there is a certain appearance of paltriness, as of toys, 
and the trumpetry of a theater in sculpture. Nature transcends all our moods of thought, and its secret we do not yet find. But the gallery stands at the mercy of our moods, and there is a moment when it becomes frivolous. I do not wonder that Newton, with an attention habitually engaged on the path of planets and suns, should have wondered what the Earl of Pembroke found to admire in stone dolls. Sculpture may serve to teach the pupil how deep is the secret of form, how purely the spirit can translate its meanings into that eloquent dialect. But the statue will look cold and false before that new activity which needs to roll through all things and is impatient of counterfeits, and things not alive. Picture and sculpture are the celebrations and festivities of forms, but true art is never fixed, but always flowing. The sweetest music is not in the oratorio, but in the human voice when it speaks from its instant life tones of tenderness, truth, or courage. The oratorio has already lost its relation to the morning, to the sun and the earth, but that persuading voice is in tune with these. All works of art should not be detached, but extempore performances. A great man is a new statue in every attitude and action. A beautiful woman is a picture which drives all beholders nobly mad. Life may be lyric or epic, as well as a poem or a romance. A true announcement of the law of creation, if a man were found worthy to declare it, would carry up into the kingdom of nature and destroy its separate and contrasted existence. The fountains of invention and beauty in modern society are all but dried up. A popular novel, a theater, or a ballroom makes us feel that we are all paupers in the almshouse of this world, without dignity, without skill or industry. Art is as poor and low. The old tragic necessity which lowers on the brows even of the Venuses and the Cupids of the antique, and furnishes the sole apology for the intrusion of such anomalous figures into nature, namely, that they are inevitable, that the artist was drunk with a passion for form which he could not resist, and which vented itself in these fine extravagances, no longer dignifies the chisel or the pencil. But the artist and the connoisseur now seek in art the exhibition of their talent, or an asylum from the evils of life. Men are not well pleased with the figure they make in their own imaginations, and they flee to art and convey their better sense in an oratorio, a statue, or a picture. Art makes the same effort which a sensual prosperity makes, namely, to detach the beautiful from the useful, to do up the work as unavoidable, and hating it, pass on to enjoyment. These solaces and compensations, this division of beauty from use, the laws of nature do not permit. As soon as beauty is sought, not from religion and love, but for pleasure, it degrades the seeker. High beauty is no longer attainable by him in canvas or in stone, in sound or in lyrical construction. In effeminate, prudent, sickly beauty, which is not beauty, is all that can be formed, for the hand can never execute anything higher than the character can inspire. The art that thus separates is itself first separated. Art must not be a superficial talent, but must begin further back in man. Now men do not see nature to be beautiful, and they go to make a statue which shall be. They abhor man as tasteless, dull, and incontrovertible, and console themselves with color bags and mocks of marble. They reject life as prosaic and create a death which they call poetic. They dispatch the day's weary chores and fly to voluptuous reveries. They eat and drink that they may afterwards execute the ideal. Thus is art vilified. The name conveys to the mind its secondary and bad senses. It stands in the imagination as somewhat contrary to nature and struck with death from the first. Would it not be better to begin higher up, to serve the ideal before they eat and drink, 
to serve the ideal in eating and drinking, in drawing the breath and the functions of life? Beauty must come back to the useful arts, and the distinction between the fine and the useful arts be forgotten. If history were truly told, if life were nobly spent, it would be no longer easy or possible to distinguish the one from the other. In nature, all is useful, all is beautiful. It is therefore beautiful because it is alive, moving, reproductive. It is therefore useful because it is symmetrical and fair. Beauty will not come at the call of a legislature, nor will it repeat in England or America its history in Greece. It will come, as always, unannounced, and spring up between the feet of brave and earnest men. It is in vain that we look for genius to reiterate its miracles in the old arts. It is its instinct to find beauty and holiness in new and necessary facts, in the field and roadside, in the shop and mill. Proceeding from a religious heart, it will raise to a divine use the railroad, the insurance office, the joint stock company, our law, our primary assemblies, our commerce, the galvanic battery, the electric jar, the prism, and the chemist's retort, in which we seek now only an economical use. Is not the selfish and even cruel aspect which belongs to our great mechanical works, to mills, railways, and machinery, the effect of the mercenary impulses which these works obey? When its errands are noble and adequate, a steamboat bridging the Atlantic between old and new England, and arriving at its port with the punctuality of a planet, is a step of man into harmony with nature. The boat at St. Petersburg, which plies along the Lena by magnetism, needs little to make it sublime. When science is learned in love, and its powers are wielded by love, they will appear the supplements and continuations of the material creation.